From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I was walking my wife the other day. If she ever finds out, she'll kill my dog. I was cheating on my wife the other day. If she finds out, my dog will kill himself. I can remember my sister musing for hours at a time about what things were like when she was little. A time apparently long gone by, it was a more innocent age for her. A time when she was afraid of silly things and found certain foods repulsive that she doesn't seem to mind as much now. These stories are honest, heartfelt reflections that have the sense of wisdom that comes with age. The only odd thing? When my sister was telling these stories, she was eight years old. Childhood is a funny thing. We don't have any way of defining it, especially since that window of time that we call adolescence seems to keep getting longer and longer. How are we supposed to know if we're children or adults? Or on the other hand, are they really such different things at all? Well, from KZSU in Stanford, California, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. In this hour, we're continuing our special presentation of pieces from Molly Antipole's undergraduate creative writing class at Stanford. Our theme, youth. Stories about growing up, not growing up, and the moments that stick with us the most. You're listening to the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Hannah Krakauer. Stay with us. You don't like to laugh at all my jokes. It's easy enough to look at a person and decide for them whether they are a child or an adult. But is it always so easy to tell when we ourselves have made that transition? And what does it even mean to be a grown-up? Michelle Goldring tells a story of fuzzy and perhaps undesirable transitions into grown-uphood. Even though I'm a senior in college, I still tell people my life plan includes being the Little Mermaid in Disney World. I look in the mirror expecting to find that at 22 I am grown-up, and I have chipmunk cheeks. They're fat, and when I smile they get wider. You could totally pass for a high school kid, a friend said last week, because of the cheeks. But they're cute. No grown-up has chipmunk cheeks, and I am not a fan of mine, but I'm a little bit proud of them just for that. At 22, I'm legal, I can drink, and I can vote, and therefore, perhaps I am an adult, but I don't consider myself one of them. Grown-ups are a species unto themselves. When Peter Pan comes back too late, Wendy Darling tells him she can't go to Neverland because she has grown up. I'm old, Peter, she says. I am ever so much more than 20. I grew up a long time ago. Quick math. Wendy's daughter Jane is probably about 10, which means Wendy herself can't be younger than 30 and is probably not over 60. So somewhere in the 20 to 50 years after Peter shipped the Darlings back to London to mind their P's and Q's, Wendy found herself grown up. And my question is, when? Did she just wake up one day and decide, enough of this playing at being grown up? I've decided. I am grown up now, and I'm sick of fake waltzing with my brothers when there are real men out there. Did she look in the mirror one day and find that she had a definitive gray streak in her hair, and that's when she knew she was grown up? I wonder if it's like childhood superstition, where if you step on a crack, you break your mother's back, and then someone invents the rule that if you step on the cracks in the parking lot, it doesn't count. It's only the cracks in the sidewalk that matter. I make rules for myself. If fewer than half of my friends are married, I'm not grown up yet. If my cell phone bill still goes to my home address, I'm not a grown up. As long as I still like peanut butter, I'm not a grown up. 
It seems to me like growing up. The moment when you start to think of yourself as an adult and look like you never have a selfish concern ever again is some boundary people cross over. They go in wearing sweatpants and t-shirts that say I heart nerdy boys or everyone loves an Irish guy and re-emerge in loafers and blazers and contain smiles. An army of well-dressed, emotionally regulated clones who might indeed go to a bar but would not be caught dead screaming hello to a friend across the street. When I grow up is the topic no one gets away from. The fate that dogs everyone universally, even if you're going to be a tile carver because your father was a tile carver. You're still going to have to grow up and be one. So when you carve a tile perfectly, is that when you're grown up? That might never happen. You might be a horrible tile carver, and you just have to stay a child the rest of your life. I had a yellow star on the wall in my first grade classroom that said, When I grow up, I'm going to be an actress. Next to it was Paulina Hernandez's star. She wanted to be a hamster trainer. And everyone else was thinking about it too, wondering, will she grow up to be an actress? Will you grow up to be like your mom? Will you work for a risk management company like Great Uncle Ned does? Even just wondering if you'll grow up and learn to cooperate. Can you please just grow up faster, teachers and parents and whoever beg us? Grow up. Stop eating the gravel. It's not nice to hit. Quit complaining. Learn to deal. Develop time management skills. Can you please just grow up and stop asking us for advice and just go? I talked with friends during lunch periods in high school when we left campus and went out to get bagels and iced coffee. Karen had a new boyfriend every week, and she criticized all of them the same way. He's such a child, she'd say. If we don't go where he wants, he complains, like, forever. My friend Marissa came in laughing at her boss, who didn't like someone's project proposal, took the paper, threw it on the floor, and jumped up and down on top of it like a two-year-old throwing a fit because no one was using the idea he wanted to use. And then, she said, he pouted the entire rest of the day. We leveled that criticism. How childish can't you grow up at our boyfriends and our bosses and our girlfriends who are jealous of our boyfriends, the people we hate and can't work with and pray with our decidedly adult fingers crossed we won't have to collaborate with. God forbid we get stuck with someone who pouts. How will us responsible adults ever cope with the horror? I laughed with my friends while we walked back into school with our very adult cups of coffee and felt like a complete imposter, like I should just throw my purse and coffee cup on the ground and start a game of freeze tag, just to prove I wasn't a grown-up. In movies and the lyrics to rap songs, it's the kids against the grown-ups, the passionate against the fun suckers, as Jamie Lee Curtis said in a remake of Freaky Friday. After being on one team all of your life, growing up and admitting you're an adult is playing for the enemy team. And it made me wonder... When you grow up, do you even know what's happening? You just start making fun of people who care about where they go on dates, and you're playing on the grown-up team without even noticing that you are committing treason. A couple of months ago, I was explaining to a friend how I couldn't stand this woman who works in the front office of the camp we work at. She is that quintessential perfect adult. Maria is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, but also one of the easiest to hate for two reasons. One, she's completely effortless, and you couldn't be that effortlessly gorgeous even if you had a dedicated 16 hours to figure it out. And two, not only is she perfectly put together, but her hair is one of those terrible efficiency styles that doesn't even come close to the jawline, forget the shoulders. She's not only totally on top of things, but her hair, her very personal essence, exudes that scent that says... My life is so together that I just look perfect because I'm on top of it. I don't even need to worry about my hair. I'll just cut it all off, and you still won't be able to beat that. 
My hair, which passes my shoulders, is the shortest it's ever been. I cannot beat that calm perfection, that unshakable air of, I am an adult and you're just going to have to deal with that, that people like her have. As much as I don't want to be a grown-up myself, I am admittedly a little bit jealous that I have not figured out how to obtain that semi-indifferent magnetism. I get flustered and it shows. I am catty and unassertive by turns, calm one second, and then talking like I may or may not just have imbibed a triple espresso. I use more adjectives in one sentence than Maria is likely to use in the course of a week. I envy the calm and the collected, but I'm not one of them. If you were to be kind, you might call me passionate. My hair is somewhat like a flag. I run every which way and it shoots behind in 17 directions. Even my hair does not pretend to be put together. I use my hair as a secondary form of facial expression. If I didn't have it, I would be almost like a mute. And I wonder, are women like Maria grown up, not like me, because they've cut their hair and donned the placid smile of the put-together while the rest of us stay loud and crazy and look like two-year-olds in comparison? Have people like Maria really leveled out, or have they picked up their uniform of adultness and just given in? Sometimes I wonder if adults are completely an invention, if maybe there are no adults. People like Maria might just get haircuts that expose their earlobes and learn to restrict their facial expressions to socially appropriate variations of calm. But I had a teacher in high school, Miss Terrence, who looked like she too was one of the uniformly perfect adults. She, however, kept an armless representation of Freud in her top left drawer. A damn it doll, she called it, because you were supposed to grab Freud by the legs and bash his head into things like a whip to get out your frustration at the world and probably at your mother. Maybe everyone really stays childish and crazy, but they learn to hide it. Michelle Goldring is a senior majoring in sociology at Stanford. Growing pains aren't limited to muscle aches from growing too fast, or to the classic teenage heartbreak we relegate to love songs. Lexi Spiranak grew up studying Taekwondo and tells a story of some more literal growing pains. Was I nervous? Yes. To score a point, the judges need to see and hear a solid contact as well as a physical displacement of your opponent. Translation, kick the other person as hard as you can. Body shot, one point. Headshot, two points. Knockout, legal win. Was I always nervous? Yes. But that's a part of it. When you step into the ring for an Olympic-style sparring match, it becomes just as much a battle of the minds as it is a battle of the bodies. You become like two animals competing for the same territory. Once someone smells fear or weakness, it's all over. You have to stay sharp, no matter what. In this particular match, I had just been stripped of my black belt. As much as I love taekwondo... It's as corrupt and greedy as any other sport. I'd switched dojongs. The school took my status as a way to force me to pay my way back up through the ranks. Every time you test for a new belt, you pay a testing fee in addition to the monthly fee. So they couldn't have me skipping all the way up through the ranks now, could they? Anyway, I was now a black belt caliber athlete wearing a meager white belt with a simple yellow stripe. The mark of a beginner, which I definitely was not. No matter how humiliated I felt, though, there was no way I could show my weakness. Wearing a white belt could have easily intensified her intimidation tactics, but like I said, it's also a battle of the minds, and I had to control mine. 
As soon as the referee signaled for us to bow and begin, I could tell from her kiap that she underestimated me. The kiap, or yell, conveys so much more than the uninformed observer realizes. One, it's a way for an athlete to distinguish his or herself from the other athletes. Since everyone wears virtually the same uniform and protective gear, it becomes crucial to develop a distinct yell. Two, it's a communication tool. Draw it out long, and you're probably gloating about scoring a point. Give a short, fast, huh, and it's a fake, designed to induce a flinch. In this particular instance, it was almost half-hearted. She was a black belt, I was a white belt, and with every sound wave that hit my eardrum, I could hear her cheeky self-assurance. We danced around for a while, and my suspicions of her cockiness were reaffirmed when I saw her characteristically drop her arms to her sides while she bounced. As a seasoned fighter, I was trained to search every body movement for indication of intention. Arms drop could mean a couple of things, but in this case, she was definitely telling me that she wasn't taking me seriously. I'm competitive. Very competitive. And needless to say, this really pissed me off. I played along for a while, light on my feet, throwing a kick here or there while she gently tapped me with her feet, like a cat playing with her prey. Fine, you're not going to play, I thought. Then let's just end this. It was still the first round, but I'd had enough. The rest of the kids at the training camp were cheering us on, but I hardly noticed them. I sprung forward and launched a full-on attack. If she wasn't going to protect her head, thinking I was incapable of quality headshots, it's about time she learns. I saw my opening, and in a split-second decision, I lifted my leg and whipped out a masterful roundhouse kick straight to the chin. She was stunned. Her little hups had turned into whimpers, and she had literally ripped her headgear off in shock and ran out the ring to the trainer where she collapsed. Out of respect, as always during an injury, I turned my back and knelt on the floor. Sitting on my heels, hands on thighs, head bent down to give her time. After a minute or two of whimper-filled silence, the ref finally declared a technical knockout, giving me the match. The other fighters started to cheer. One lone voice from the crowd yelled, Schooled by a white belt. Taekwondo is more than just beating the crap out of people. Fundamentally, it's about discipline and respect. Did I feel bad for knocking the poor girl out? No. I was completely in control of every limb of my body, and I did what I needed to do to win. She was cocky and showing a complete disregard for the effort I had put into the sport. Let's say I was a white belt. In that case, when fighting a lower belt, you should take the match as seriously as any other, if not more seriously, as your chances of getting a swift, inexperienced kick to the knee or the crotch probably quadruple. Taekwondo should never be about showing off and inflicting embarrassment. Certainly this happens. Countless times I've seen upper belts twist and turn and fly through the air in a match against a lower belt, simply to prove their skills. In the media, martial arts are often portrayed as being an after-school activity for fourth-grade boys, or a cheesy, laugh-inducing smattering of punches, kicks, and flips. While there's certainly some truth to these representations, I spent many a day corralling wild and sweaty elementary and middle schoolers. They come nowhere close to revealing the complexity of the sport. Taekwondo is about discipline and respect, but not just in the ring, in life as well. Thinking about it now, I can honestly say that Taekwondo has shaped so many different aspects of my life. I vividly remember one training camp I did at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. At these camps, a handful of the most talented athletes from across the country, usually the same gang of people, would join the OTC resident athletes for a weekend of intense training. The resident athletes are the best fighters in the country with the stipulation that they were over 15, 
and included Olympians and Olympic and national medalists. My goal for when I was 15 was to join them, despite my absolute hatred for these camps. And this one was by far the worst. We had already been through two eight-hour training days, and we're halfway through the third. We worked out in a fluorescent-lit, padded-floored room in the basement of the gymnastics and basketball training building. It smelled like feet and the air felt thick. For some reason, the majority of girls who want to reach a high level in the sport are short and light. With my 5'10 stature, although thin at 130 pounds, for weight class reasons, I had a hard time finding training partners. Therefore, on this particular day, I was paired with a six-foot-tall male, and little did I know, I was in for the worst beating of my life. This particular drill had two purposes. The first was target practice, as most drills are, where you're supposed to kick the other person square in their chest gear. The second was for the target, me in this case, and a little more problematic. We were learning how to take hits, which meant tightening your core to absorb the impact, and the kicker was therefore supposed to hit you as hard as he could. This posed quite the dilemma. I didn't want him to lose practice kicking full force. Light kicks weren't naturalistic. But I really didn't want to simply stand there and allow myself to get the crap beat out of me. Nevertheless, the instincts that had been ingrained in me took over, and not wanting to seem like a wimpy girl, I told him to go ahead and kick as hard as he could. He unleashed blow after blow, occasionally checking to make sure I was still all right before continuing to use his powerful legs to start bringing stars to my eyes. I was, for the time being. I took control over my mind and my body and willed myself to get through the drill. Later that night, after four more hours of fighting, I had a migraine that was so intense, the pain actually caused me to throw up. Now you might be thinking, that sounds awful. Yep, it was. But the things that the sport has done for me are just too valuable to look back and regret any part of it. As stereotypical as the benefits may seem, like leadership skills, respect for authority, and the ability to defend myself, they have become ingrained in the way I function and still surprise me in the ways that they creep up. I'll end with a good example of one of the somewhat unexpected ways that my Taekwondo experience shows up in my life. In my dorm, it has become tradition to pie people in the face on their birthdays. Not something I particularly like, but hey, some people think it's funny. On my birthday, I thought I'd made it apparent that I did not want to be pied, as it takes me 30 minutes to dry my hair and another 20 minutes to finish my makeup. Clearly, having pie smashed into my hair and rubbed all over my face right before I was about to go out for a birthday dinner was not the most appealing thought. As I rounded the corner, the sneaky pyre jumped out from behind a door, pie in hand, poised for an attack. And it was at that moment that my taekwondo training kicked in. I saw the pie and turned my back to dodge. And at that moment, I had an intense urge to throw a back kick right into his solar plexus. Back to the assault. I began to lift my leg, and then I realized, wait, this is a kid I live with. I can't kick the crap out of him. I surrendered and let the surprisingly light and fluffy pie penetrate my perfectly styled hair, smear across my masterfully applied makeup. Was I pissed? Yes. But I was rather impressed that within a split second, I was able to identify an attacker and make a decision on how to best defend myself. Thank you, Taekwondo. Where would I be without you? Lexi Spiranak is a junior majoring in communication at Stanford.
One of my favorite memories from school is the morning that my mom forced me and my sister to leave for school late so we could watch the rest of an old movie on TV. She thought that kind of education was more worthwhile than whatever we'd learn in the first hour of school. Sarah Grossman also grew up with a unique family dynamic that shaped the way she talks to her parents and her brothers even now. At a certain point, being good at sports stopped mattering in my family. Being tough was worth nothing. If it hurt, you were supposed to listen to your body, which made our coaches hate us, even when we were the best players on the team. Apparently, mind over matter existed, but took an opposite effect when it came to us. We didn't preach it like those guys in the movies who broke all their fingers on both their hands and still managed to sink the winning shot with the torn ACL. It was a mantra that allowed us to fall short of what could have been our achievements almost every single game or practice that we weren't feeling 100%. Add a simple gene of paranoia to the mix, and you can imagine we weren't feeling 100% very often. From an early age, we all understood we were only granted one body and that we better not overwork it because it was going to have to last us a pretty long time. We'd always had the musical side. That began when I was six years old and when my three older brothers, David, Jonathan, and Zach, were 8, 10, and 11, respectively. Jonathan started teaching himself rock piano then, branching out from classical music and sounding out chords from popular songs on the radio. It was then that he began encouraging me to sing as well. Every single night without fail, Jonathan's hands hit the piano keys, David grabbed the drum set, Zach took guitar, and I took the microphone. The Beatles were the first writers of our evenings. By the time I was in fifth grade, it was Jonathan who composed our after-dinner bonding. This is a clip from a song, Diamond in the Rough, that he wrote when he was in ninth grade. We sing together on the track. One of the first lessons from my dad was to never go to sleep mad. He provided little explanation, just told me it was bad for me. In my young brain, I understood it in a tangible, physical sense, like going to sleep angry might result in waking with a fever. It is a lesson I learn over and over again, the difference between waking up with a thought lodged in your ribcage versus waking up to clean breath. I have learned that I was right all along, that it is physical. It's the conversations that are hard to have that end up lodged there. The conversations that indict the person on the receiving end until that feeling evaporates. With my brothers, there is no such thing. We will never go to sleep until we are all on the same page. Signatures on that line with the X at the bottom, dated, all T's crossed. Jonathan and I reached that point first, that point at which we felt we could say anything to each other and so said everything to each other. When we each were sophomores, I in high school, he in college, Jonathan said to me, if you died right now, it would be okay. It would be the least okay in terms of loss, he had said, but the most okay in terms of fulfillment. There was no outstanding balance with us, nothing that we didn't understand about each other, no explanations that we owed. If we never could see each other again, there was nothing we felt we'd missed out on. It's the stuff that's missing that gets lodged in your lungs when you wake up after going to sleep raw. Sometimes there's no time to find it before bedtime. Sometimes what's missing can't be found by talking to other people at least not in time for brushing your teeth and tucking yourself in.
I identified the time that we lost sports with the time that we began to talk. It seemed our musings on the rigidity within sports and hierarchy within the team made us all cry bull**t. We hated the favoritism and tough love and the psychology of motivation. Should a coach challenge his player or nurture her, compliment her or criticize her? Hated the mind games. We were interested in looking towards a higher level of sensitivity when it came to people dealing with people. My dad, who wavered between a psychology and philosophy major in college, constantly insulted the coaches who threw chairs, felt like teams would do better if the coaches just connected with the kids. Can't they see what these kids need, he'd say? I skipped a basketball season to be in a play. Neither of my parents ever believed in punishment. They treated it like it was an ideology they refused to buy into. Even after endless teasing and pranks by my youngest older brother, David, no matter how many times I asked that he be locked in a room or his dessert be taken away, the closest we ever got was a question. When are you going to stop bothering your sister? I asked that he be thrown out the window. They told me I had a great sense of humor. No, they'd respond. One day they believed we would even grow to be friends. I have to say at this point that they were right. My brothers and I came to be close because we weren't allowed not to be. I never thought it was weird that I sat in on their playdates and played Lincoln Logs alongside whoever came over that day. It was kind of like the condition under which one of the Grossman kids would continue to be friends with someone if he or she got along with the rest of us. I didn't realize that it was abnormal that at a certain point, we opted for summer evenings on our own rather than inviting the friends over. We communicated by ourselves at a certain level that only few reached. Even now, we say we won't get married until we have all the siblings' approval. Family vacations would be terrifying with someone even one of us didn't like. Even more terrifying would be not to have family vacations because someone one of us didn't like. We were always questioning people. Not like putting them on the witness stand, but kind of like asking them to take a load off on a friendly, warm, instead of hot, hot seat. I remember being in third grade and asking one of Zach's friends, one of the cutest boys in his eighth grade class, about his instant message conversation with one of Jonathan's friends, the prettiest girl in Jonathan's seventh grade class. I also remember his surprise at the fact that Jonathan had relayed information to me that had nothing to do with me at all. I was always asking the older kids surprising questions, and was always surprised that they consistently answered. By the time I was a freshman in high school, friends would come over after parties so they could have kitchen time with David and me, something we'd do every night before bed, whether or not a friend was present, whether or not it was a weekend. There, we discussed the whole night over pita chips and cream cheese. Zach never followed his three younger siblings in this art of finding out everything there was to know about a person, the art of talking, of feeling connected. His loyalty never quite seemed to be ours. He continued to be captivated by the rah-rah aspect of sports, the family of a team, the leadership he could exhibit. We felt like the familial aspect of his basketball team was conditional, based on performance, and that he felt such a strong feeling of duty and obligation. He never found the same love of shooting the breeze and laughing till the wee hours. We thought the seriousness with which he took sports was funny, the seriousness with which he took himself during sports even more humorous. He can agree when they say Lucky guy No doubt about it People can say hurtful things that can't be retracted and even if they're apologized for will never do much more than tarnish, fade, fog up, be piled on top of. On one summer night in high school, I sat and listened while my family held a meeting on my ability to think. It had always been noted that Jonathan and I sided together for any family argument or decision. As I was the younger of the two, I apparently was always the follower of him, definitely not an equal leader. 
They said that at a certain point, if I continued only to agree with him, that I wouldn't have my own brain. Now, I reflect that I wasn't just blindly agreeing with him. I just trusted his decisions more than the rest of the families. Then, I sat there, playing with my cell phone, trying to keep from showing weakness. At a certain point, I left, allowing them to continue to discuss my brain. I eavesdropped from the hallway, listened to my mom walk into the conversation from her room. This talking thing, she said, you guys can talk things out all you want, but this won't help her. This is only going to do harm. I agreed. I still agree. It was a conversation abusing the power of talk. Multiple people on one side, ganging up on one, each person gaining a point for a good argument, nothing constructive about it. Sharing their beliefs with me wasn't helpful, even if they were true. It was a part of honesty that just wasn't good. Sarah Grossman is a sophomore at Stanford. She and her brother Jonathan recorded the music for this piece. If there is one thing we have control over when we're growing up, with any luck, it's our bedrooms. We decorate, arrange, rearrange, and sometimes destroy with the kind of mess our parents demand we clean up. Jeff Bauman tells a story of a more extreme approach to room arrangement, and to life in general. I believe you can tell a lot about a person if you look around their room. So I'm going to give you a tour of my room, starting with the bookshelf. Each shelf within the unit is a different genre, sports, textbooks, automotive lit. In each section, the books are arranged in descending order of height from left to right, and the order is invariable. Death of a Salesman always goes immediately to the left of the Great Gatsby, even though they are the same height. Model cars fill up parking spots between rows of books held up by bookends. On my desk, the tape machine is at the far right, and the stapler is immediately left. These items both rest on top of a small white notepad, and a pencil can is directly behind them. The rest of the space is empty and dustless. The floor is entirely clear. Underneath the TV, the video games are sorted by console and genre in descending order of case height from left to right, and the order is invariable. Halo always goes immediately to the left of Call of Duty, even though they're the same height, console, and genre. The Xbox remote rests immediately to the left of the TV remote. This is the only configuration my room comes in. If one element is out of place, I know there's been an intruder. There's also a row of model cars on a canopy above my bed, and that one has a set order too from left to right. Jaguar, Corvette, Viper, Ferrari, Camaro, Blue Porsche, Red Porsche, Silver Porsche. I know this order from memory, not observation. And the spaces between the cars have to be even. Evenness is my thing. When I put on a sweatshirt, the strings coming from the hood have to be even. Same with shoelaces, drawstrings, backpack straps, and so on. Organization is also my thing. When I eat candies that have different flavors, like Skittles, Mike and Ike, or Smarties, I always sort them by color before eating them. I never sort M&Ms, though, because they're all the same flavor. At meals, I always eat the side dish before the main dish. That means potatoes before steak, fries before burger, and stuffing before turkey. For me, food is subject to quite a few rules. I won't eat fruit. Not because of some phobia or because I hate the taste. In fact, I have no conscious memory of ever eating a fruit. With three exceptions, I enjoy grapefruit, lime, and lemon. But all the other fruits I consider contaminated. Apples, bananas, grapes, cherries, pears, plums, kiwis, oranges, strawberries, mango, pineapple, etc. Contaminated by what, I don't know. But I won't touch them, let alone put them in my mouth. I won't touch cartons that carry fruit juice either, or glasses. You can probably guess the way I feel about Jamba Juice. Up until the time high school began, I wouldn't eat any vegetables either. 
although I've branched out a bit. I like lettuce, spinach, broccoli, carrots, peas, green beans. Something else I've grown into is still water. Growing up, I only drank carbonated water. Plain carbonated water at that, no fruit flavors, of course. That, like the vegetable prohibition I've grown out of. But the fruit ban I've held on to since infancy. My friends in high school knew all these things, and they would ask me in all seriousness if I'd ever been checked out for OCD. It's a fearsome phrase, acknowledging that you have a disorder instead of mere personality quirks. I told everybody that I was just quirky, which I really believed. It was true. The quirks never got in the way of studying or anything else. That's where I draw the line between just being weird and having OCD. After I graduated high school, however, that line started to blur. Sometime shortly after the transition to college, the unwanted thoughts kicked into high gear. This is the side of OCD you don't get from watching Monk. Think of it as a broken mental filter. You see a gruesome image on TV, and there it is the next day during class with friends at the dinner table. Sometimes the image doesn't come from the media. Unprovoked images from daily life can crowd everything else out of your head. You miss a step going down the stairs, and you can't concentrate for hours. The compulsions are performed in some kind of irrational, feeble attempt to stop the obsessive thoughts. I remember tearing down an entire wall of posters one night and endlessly cutting them at the edges to make them straighter. I couldn't stop the thoughts myself, so I was prescribed medicine to help. Celexa, Lexapro, Clonopin, Trazodone for sleep. Racing thoughts often kept me awake at night, and I had plenty of time to think about my diagnosis. OCD. Taking medicine, there was no way around it. I didn't like the medicines, though, so I learned to live without them. The biggest part of that was controlling the obsessive thoughts. Other than the quirks about fruit and arbitrary order, that keeps compulsive behavior out of my daily life. But I realized that I wouldn't necessarily want to keep obsessive behaviors quite out of my life. In fact, just as much as I obsess about staying away from certain things, I obsess about keeping close to others. Like cars. Anyone who ever wanted to talk cars was an instant friend throughout my life. I never grew out of the boyish obsession with automotive technology. In fact, as a baby, I would scream a sort of ka sound at any passing object with wheels, bus, train, motorcycle, it didn't matter. My roots to automobiles are deep. My first word, inspired by Speed Racer, was go, and my next word was car. Here's how I learned to read. My mother would accompany me out into a parking lot, and I would run my fingers over the labels on the backs of cars while she sounded out the words to me, Chevrolet. Between license plates and the makes and models of cars, my phonetic system was safely intact. As a young boy, I went through my construction equipment phase, but grew out of it. What I grew into was sports cars, any make or model as long as it was low, sleek, and fast. I drew them. I subscribed to Car and Driver for nine years. After learning early in life to see the difference between makes of sports cars, I learned to hear the difference. When I visited family in distant cities, the one place I would ask to go was the local Ferrari dealership. My first job was at a car dealership. The funny thing is that neither of my parents gives a rat's ass about cars. But they took me to endless construction yards when I was young and car shows when I was older. And I could never get enough. But more importantly, like I said, I've learned to keep the obtrusive thoughts at bay. I can't completely get rid of them, but I can make sure that their impact is limited. And without music, that wouldn't be possible for me. I use music to keep the bad thoughts out. If it were up to me, life would be like a waltz. Consistent, steady tempo, prescribed steps, everything in a designed order. But this is a reality that exists for me only when listening to music, sheltered from the inherent chaos of life. This waltz by Chopin 
is one of hundreds of musical pieces that I take with me wherever I go. Not necessarily in my iPod, in my head. The same way I remember that I missed a stair step in Her Majesty's Theatre in London three years ago, I can play back music in my mind, note for note, instrument for instrument. Certain things just don't leave my head. The way I see it, if my mind is a record that's bound to play over and over again, I might as well put on a good one. I find that with each repetition of a piece, it grows more and more beautiful. Sometimes I'll sit and listen to music for an hour at a time, uninterrupted. And not while doing something else, just listening. When I'm in this world, everything functions as it should. Every note is in its place exactly at the proper time. There's no crack on this seal that anxiety or uncertainty can sneak through. At any time of day, in as little as a five-minute break, I can escape from a hectic, disorganized world into a place that brings me peace, quietude, and structure. In that order. Jeff Bauman is an undergraduate at Stanford. I still have one of my favorite stuffed animals from even before I can remember. I very originally named her Kitty, and by now she's little more than a mess of cotton batting, the result of an overeager love. Crystal Lee also had strong relationships with stuffed animals, in her case, with stuffed polar bears. The polar bear, Ursus maritimus, is the world's largest land carnivore. It sits at the top of the Arctic food chain, devouring seals with its powerful crushing jaws. A certain tribe of polar bear, the Panzerbjorn, is even known to create armor out of meteorites and to battle against angels. And when polar bears attack, it is fast, violent, and without warning. The bear waits by the breathing hole of a seal, is silent, still, and holds its breath in anticipation. The seal is like the sister of the friend of the protagonist of a horror movie. She foolishly opens the door to strangers, peeks her head outside, exhales. Bam! The hand grabs her hair, the forepaw drags the prey onto the ice, the sister of the friend shrieks, the seal squeals. The axe comes down, the teeth close around its head. But as with all dangerous creatures, the polar bear's greatest predator is none other than the human, the most violent of all. In the case of a certain Ursidae family in New York City, the threat is the supreme homo sapien I call my mother. In her hands, the bears are nothing more than mere cotton, devoid of imaginative life. She is fast to act and her words more biting than the teeth of an armored bear. A decade and a half later, the seven bears have dwindled down to four. These bears were not born out of ice and snow, but from factory fluff. And the gunned company that bred these creatures, that twisted and stuffed and sewed them into shape, sold the whole family to a pair of brothers. Those brothers were my cousins. When I was in elementary school, my older sister and I went to their house during the holidays, and they taught us how to pray and play Warcraft and Tekken, and gave us marvelous gifts. On one occasion, I am excited as my sister and I race up the stairs to see the bears. They look like fuzzy lumps with tiny tails, tiny ears, and only stubs for feet, and no necks. When they sit on their rears, they look up at the person reaching to hug them with smiles sewn onto their snouts, and show off the crescent moon-shaped patch of white on their soft bellies. I think that they are the most adorable creatures in the world. My sister loves her black and white cow too much to agree. In my second memory, I am greedy. I already have bears, but I want more. My cousins give me and my sister wrapped packages. I open mine to find a doll, which squeaks kiss me with smooching sound effects that send chills down my spine. It is a lecherous, big-headed brat of a girl. I want to crush her and burn her and obliterate her like they did with Chucky in the first movie. 
My sister gets a bear and I am jealous. I express my anger later through the game of Monopoly. When I don't win, I throw the metal pieces, stomp on the paper money, and scream. The gunned bears are called snuffles by the company. Snuffles lead me to liking polar bears, delude me into thinking I want to study animal behavioral ecology. In high school, I have a brief stint researching the stereotypic behaviors of two spectacled bears at the Queen Zoo. Every day for the whole summer, Cisco and Pancho eat, forage, masturbate. We told curious children they were just preening. Swim, sleep in circles, and pace on the rocks. I start to show signs of stereotypic behavior in my own room. Pick up the habit of walking back and forth to music in a small space for several hours a day. My mother thinks I devolved into beardom. But when my sister and I named our bears, I didn't know all that. I just didn't want to name them Snuffles. Even in second grade, I knew that snuff was something in a box that our wigged forefathers used to pinch and stuff up their noses. It sounded disgusting. So I called my white bear QC and my pink bear something horrid. My sister named her bears Pinky and something equally simplistic. One of the bigger polar bears was given away, so we called the remaining one Mommy Bear, and the big brown one Daddy Bear. Daddy Bear was sedated with naphthalene and descended into the dark, unknown void of the closet. Mommy Bear watched over us from the couch, and the baby bears rolled about on our own beds until the white ones met their demise. QC was the first to go, reported missing in action soon after I had gotten her. On the last day of our Presbyterian summer camp, QC fell out of a bag my sister was carrying and was left behind. When we got home, I wailed and threw a tantrum until my sister gave me her white cub. The bear eventually became my most treasured possession, and my sister had her sacred cow, so we role-played with them every day after school. When my mother tried to use them as pillows, my sister and I screamed and pushed her head away. She complained that we loved inanimate objects more than her, our own mother, but she didn't understand they were alive. And she, who constantly threatened to squash the bears like mother pandas often do to their own young in their sleep, was the greatest threat to their existence. By middle school, my bear's name changed to Susanna. I had renamed all my animals after close friends. I had greatly abused them, especially Susanna, suffocating her while sleeping and throwing her like a handball against the wall when I was angry. Voodoo-like, my friendships in real life also dissolved. Then, Easter Sunday, on an unknown date, Susanna died. Our mother was in the kitchen, angry at our laziness, and when I stuck paper bunny ears on Susanna and hopped around, she immediately snatched up the dirty thing and threw her out with the eggs. I screamed and pleaded, but my mother was firm and emotionless. When I moved to open the plastic bag, the great huntress snarled and threatened to mutilate her corpse with scissors. It's Easter, I cried. They're a threatened species. We don't celebrate Easter, my mother said. It was true. By then, we had rejected the Presbyterian Church. Our relatives, who had tried to convert us, ran off with our money instead to preach in California. So while the churches celebrated Jesus' resurrection, Susanna passed on to the next world. I doubted the existence of a human afterlife, but still believed there was a hell for stuffed animals in the form of a landfill, aptly named Fresh Kills. I schemed to travel to Staten Island and rescue her from rabid rats. For months after, I would heroically chase down garbage trucks in my mind and wade through trash to find Susanna but then would realize that she might actually already be crushed by the jaws of the trash compactor, and burst out sobbing. I regretted not having braved my mother's wrath to save her. My sister drew a picture that looked like the profile of a pineapple gummy bear, and wrote a little epitaph. To our beloved Susanna, may she rest in peace. She will be missed. I was certain there would never be a replacement for Susanna. My sister eventually gave me her pink bear, so I would stop mourning and moaning, and Pinky slowly grew to soothe my misery. At first, Pinky was too fat, soft, baby for her, we called it, and we only held her up by the tag that said, 
Gund Incorporated. Copyright 1980. Surface washable. Mild suds. Cold water. Air dry. Brush gently. We kissed her lightly, brushed gently between the ears, but never having done laundry, ignored the other stuff. My sister asked me, Do you think surface washable means we can't wash her insides? I said, I don't know. That seems stupid. My mother said, Don't worry, and tossed her into the washing machine. After a few repeated cycles, Pinky was no longer fuzzy, just a clumpy ball of polyester fibers. I discovered she contained plastic pellets that accumulated in her rear from the repeated washings. I would also watch horror flicks or documentaries in which polar bears were hunted down from helicopters. And when Pinky sniffed and curled up next to me, I'd feel the sadistic satisfaction of loving and being loved. As a result of the constant maltreatment and stress, Pinky lost weight and lost the velvet off her nose. She became the vessel for all my secrets and tears that I would then wash out when she stopped smelling like dryer sheets. Her pink sister, much like my own, had long been rejected by me as being too passive, annoyingly insipid in character, and ineffective when necessary. What did she do while Susanna was being hunted by her mother, or Pinky was being bullied by Kiwi? Daddy Bear was a ghost, missing for over a decade. He had been wrapped up and stuffed into a storage box, and even when we came across him while digging for new socks, he didn't speak. Pinky reacted to his appearances with excited squeaks and uncertainty. He responded with a silence that equated to a gap of knowledge on my part. Mommy Bear was more central to Pinky's life, gave her the occasional reproving nips when Pinky was disobedient, let Pinky ride on her back when she was lonely. Her active friends dwindled to just Kiwi, my sister's cow, and when Kiwi went off to college with my sister, only I remained. By senior year of high school, Pinky stopped talking. Whenever I go home now, my mother sighs and says, I think it's time for her to go. But I can't let her die. A residual essence still remains behind her unblinking eyes. Around the time that polar bears made the endangered species list, I searched for a companion for Pinky. I was, to be honest, looking for another Susanna. The 6-inch 1980 vintage snuffles were no longer in production, but via a saccharine coincidence, I found a slightly bigger 8-inch modern snuffles at the sweet shop before it went out of business. The new snuffles was squishier, had more noticeable beads in its guts, was not as round, but it had grown up with the times, had street smarts. I named him Humbaba, a little guard bear, a terror to human beings, especially predatory ones like my mother. Humbaba, his voice is the deluge, his speech is fire, and his breath is death. Be wary, mother, stay away, leave the bears alone. Crystal Lee is a senior at Stanford. There was a period of time in elementary school when I refused to leave the house in anything other than overalls. I had overall shorts, overall pants, and even corduroy overalls for special occasions. Emily Vogel also knows a thing or two about clothing fixation and walks us through what it's like to be wholeheartedly dedicated to fashion trends. My mommy and daddy had to work late every day at the tall white building with the dusty track in my preschool next to it. But when I was in first grade, I couldn't go to preschool anymore, and that meant someone had to take care of me, and that meant I had to go to the after-school club. And that meant I had to hang out with fifth graders. 
During the day, our recesses were split, so I didn't have to talk to the fifth graders. And even though we had separate study rooms at the after-school club, we all had snack time together. So it was probably snack time that I remember them staring at me, me and the bright red bandana tied around my neck. They glanced at each other and back at the bright red bandana, and then back at each other, talking to each other with their eyes occasionally going back to me. They said, Do you remember? Have you heard the story about the girl with a bandana around her neck? How she was using it to keep her head on? And when someone took the bandana, her head fell off? I didn't say anything. Staring up at the two fifth graders through my long corn-colored bangs, my lips dropped apart, my fingers tugging at the fabric of my pants, thinking, Oh no, oh no, I've been wearing this bandana around my neck every day for the last few months, and that means I'm going to turn into the girl in the story and my head is going to fall off. When I heard my mommy's heels clacking across the sidewalk and saw her bright blue suit and knew it was time to go home, I waddled silently after her. I went home that night and dropped my backpack on the floor where I could find it in the morning and then buried my bright red bandana in my dresser where I could never find it again. The bandana around the neck phase was over. In second grade, I wore flower print shirts because my mommy came into school to teach us art projects and I was the only girl in my group of friends and sometimes the boys tried to forget that I was a girl. By fourth grade, I wasn't so sure I wanted to be a girl anymore, and the flower print shirts of second grade were embarrassing. In fourth grade, me and my best friend hated dresses. We wore cargo pants, and I don't know for sure, but I guess that, like me, she bought all her clothes from the boys' side of Gap, except that one shirt she wore with flowers. But I hated flowers, almost as much as I hated that fat boy named Chase. I remember I was in my favorite khaki cargo pants and my favorite red t-shirt with Gap written out in blue letters. A long day at school, and I was sitting at my desk back at the after-school club, where so many of my favorite outfits turned ugly, and this time it was a third grader named Chase, but he was fat and stupid and loud. One of those kids that everyone knew the name of, but he couldn't remember most of ours. He stopped at my desk and said, I know that shirt. I looked at him and decided he was too stupid to talk to. He said, I saw that shirt on the boy's side of Gap. Are you wearing a boy's shirt? I rolled my eyes and looked away. I tried to remind myself that he was stupid, and the reason I wasn't replying was because he was stupid. But spontaneously, the cargo pants from the boy's side of Gap phase that I had been wearing all year seemed like the ugliest combination of clothes I could possibly think of. Each phase ends violently. After the cargo pants phase, I switched to extra-large men's shirts and soccer shorts, and then the monochrome phase in middle school. And then the dresses over denim jeans phase. And the necklace phase. The shorts over leggings phase when I first got to college the cutting the sleeves off my running shirts phase, and the tie-dye phase, and the headband phase, and now the -the off-the-shoulder phase, and probably a hundred smaller ones in between these that I can't remember. My friends in high school would probably tell me that it's not about following fashion, it's about following your own personal style. But I don't do either. The clothes I like swing dramatically every five months or so, and I get stuck on a peculiar look that I decide for some odd reason that I really like and then exist only in that outfit for a few straight months and then completely drop it. I don't think that's what my friends meant by personal style. Every old face of mine is now hideous. When my dad bought my mom a digital picture frame and stuffed it full of old pictures of my mother's beloved daughters, I buzzed in my seat, waiting for the picture to change, and what on earth am I wearing? Look at what I'm wearing. Orange shorts and a red Roxy t-shirt. What was wrong with me in middle school? I mean, I knew I went through a monochrome phase, but I didn't know I was also colorblind. Even the phase I'm in now seems a little ridiculous, because it's not the 80s, but I'm cutting the shoulders off my shirt like my middle school dance teacher. And it's strange because I'm the kind of person who cares intensely about what they're wearing, the kind of girl who stands in front of her mirror and tries on different outfits for 20 minutes, always in desperation coming back to the first outfit before I can leave my room. 
I remember one day in high school, I skipped first period to meander around campus with my new best friend, and we saw a girl from our journalism class hanging out on the benches. It was a typically cool gray day at my high school on the top of the hill where all the fog settled, so that when I got dressed for school it was bright and sunny out, but halfway to school I entered a fog bank and immediately wished I had brought a sweater. Today I planned ahead, and instead of jeans and my favorite blue and pink dress over them, I was wearing jeans and a deep green sweater. When my new best friend and me walked up to this girl, she glared at my clothes and said, Wait, Emily, I'm so confused. You're dressed, like, normal. Apparently the dress over jeans phase I had stuck with for the last four months was just plain weird. If I care so much about my clothes, why do I always fixate on the most ridiculous combinations? Maybe I don't even realize how weird they are until someone points it out to me. If I think back to the beginning of the year, the tie-dye phase probably ended when a boy told me I wear tie-dye a lot. If a boy notices my clothes, there must be something wrong with them. But it's not always someone else who turns my fixation into something hideous. The monochrome phase ended one day at school when I refused to take off my sweatshirt all day because my shirt didn't match my pants. I baked and boiled in my black sweatshirt and black pants and realized I looked like a goth. And I'm not a goth, so I should stop dressing in monochrome dark colors. Maybe my phases say something about my personality. Maybe I'm wholly indecisive, jumping from phase to phase after I decide each one is terrible. But I'm very decisive in each phase. I guess the better word would be flighty. But I don't think of myself as flighty. Also, it's hard for me to say that a five-month-long obsession makes me flighty. Five months is a decent amount of time. Some phases don't last long. And there's one phase that oddly defies the rules and that phases dresses. I hated dresses in elementary school, to the point of complaining for months to my best friend, when my mom made me wear a dress for our family portrait. But during the dresses over denim jeans phase in high school, that changed slowly. I remember the first day I wore a dress just by itself, without any denim underneath. That day, me and my best friend paced around campus and leaned against the ceramics lockers. She told me about how her brother didn't want her to go to college, and I talked about my mom not letting me apply out of state, and we talked about things that I had been repeating over and over in my head. It was strange that I finally let these thoughts spill out of my brain and off my tongue when I was wearing a dress, because I always felt so fidgety in dresses. But now I was open. The dress was white with pink flowers, and I still wear it today. I wear it in the spring. My phases come and go, but every spring marks the start of the sundress phase. My friends tease me because I own about 50 sundresses all stuffed together in my closet, and I never have enough. I always want to go shopping for more sundresses. I bought seven over spring break. Because throughout all my phases since high school, I always come back to sundresses. Maybe that means my phases have actually steered me somewhere, or at least are slowly circling around somewhere. Instead of just popping up and disappearing into oblivion, maybe my phases are finally approaching what my high school friends would call style. I love sundresses. Sundresses wrap around my body and then spin out in flowers and prints and sing that the weather is beautiful, and I'm so happy, and you should be so happy too. Emily Vogel is a junior majoring in psychology at Stanford. Our last story today is All Grown Up. It's about college, studying abroad, and trying to find an identity within it all. Billy Kemper tells us his story. So I'm a year three at the old university, and like many of my school chums, last semester I studied abroad. Heck, who am I kidding? I've been studying broads every semester. I remember before I got to school, my pa asked me what I wanted to do. What do I want to do? Gee, pa, I said. I don't know if we should be discussing this matter with little sister Betsy in the room. 
He gave me a good smack for that one. But then he says, he says, I'm just trying to help you pick classes. Just think what you want to do after college. Well, I said, like you, Pa, I want to be faithful and just do my wife. He must have thought I was being sarcastic because he smacked me again, called me a wise guy, and then left to get a pack of Lucky Strikes. He still hasn't come back. But seriously, I actually was abroad my fall semester in Europe, Florence, which is in Italy. Great time. Really glad I went. Before I left, I was a little apprehensive about the whole ordeal, you know, living at a homestay with a family that didn't speak English. But they ended up being wonderful. I mean, they cooked for us, cleaned for us, and were just always hugging us and smiling. You know, just a very different culture than in my house. Nah, nah, I'm just pulling your hair. My real host family's great, too. Like my mom, she's a real doll. Her name's Dottie, which is a bit ironic considering she's a ginger. But besides that, she's great. I remember getting a big hug and a nice smooch on the cheek when she dropped me off at the airport before going to Italy. She told me she stuck a few emergency supplies in my suitcase, which ended up being a Ziploc bag full of various sized band-aids and a half-used sheet of gas X. Evidently, my mother's worst fear is that I'll be lost, alone, and bleeding and farting incessantly. If she ever hears this, she'll probably reprimand me for using fart. For a family that jokes and prepares for flatulence as often as we, it's pretty surprising that we never were allowed to refer to farts as well. Farts. The appropriate term was always to go gas. Did somebody go gas? Who went gas? Billy, stop going gas. I still don't use fart in front of her. No ifs, ands, or buts either. Only bumpers. And hey, my dad, he ain't so bad either. Sure, he looks like a snore, but he's got a wild streak. Well, I guess it's more of a bald spot. But no, he's been known to let what hair he does have down every once in a while. Like just the other week, he got busted and got his fake taken at Denny's. But enough about my family. How about me? Let's see, my birthday's coming up this year, but besides that, I'm pretty free. I've done some stuff in the past, though. Like a few somethings ago, I was at this concert on campus, you know, at Stanford. Yeah, represent. Fuck on that, Cal, our rival school. I've hated those guys ever since I came to Stanford and they told us that that was our rival school. Really made my blood boil. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, at this great concert at my non-rival school. I think it was like Passion Pit or Designer Drugs, or maybe just beer, but I was feeling pretty loosey by the time I got to the concert. Unfortunately, it was finishing up when I got there, but it was cold out and people were still sweaty, so I figured it was a pretty out-of-shape crowd. But then afterwards, people were still hanging around and like talking about how they danced and stuff, and I overheard that the band was still hanging around at the after party, so I ended up saying good job to so many hipsters. So many Buddy Holly glasses. How do hipsters feel when legitimately unaware, nerdier types just show them up at their own game? They're going to have to start rocking braces fashionably to stay ahead of the curve. Oh, and I meant like mouth braces, you know, not magic shoes. But yeah, fuck braces. Have we not made any new developments in the field of orthodontics? Cementing sharp wire into your mouth? Give me a piece of bark to bite on some leeches while you're at it. Good God. Well, I guess they have those Invisalign retainers now, which are great because it makes it look like you have a thin layer of slime on your teeth while also painfully readjusting them. I remember when I first got my braces, I said I wanted the chrome-colored bands, you know, so I could say it was like a grill, which got old really fast. But yeah, what's up with that in rap? I mean, money can be cheese, cheddar, gouda, goat cheese... Or any green vegetable. Or any of those cheeses melted over any of those green vegetables. But why are diamonds only ice? They could be like glass or something. Shit, homie, look at this chain. Look like I got a damn window around my neck. Man, my mouth be looking like that IM pay design pyramid outside the Louvre. And if houses are cribs, cars are whips, are clothes diapers? Because those were really the three staples of my upbringing. 
I've been in love with the same woman for 50 years. If my wife ever finds out, she'll kill me. I have sex with a woman with big, beautiful eyes. My wife has big, beautiful eyes. What a coincidence. I've been married for the same woman for 30 years. If my wife ever finds out, she'll kill me. The other day, my brother asked me why I look so sad. I told him, my wife, she's so ugly. And my wife, she's not too good looking herself. The first time I was talking about a dog. I was walking my dog the other day. If my wife ever finds out, she'll kill me. I was walking my dog the other day. Turns out it was my wife. I was walking my wife the other day. If she ever finds out, she'll kill my dog. I was cheating on my wife the other day. If she finds out, my dog will kill himself. I was cheating on my wife the other day. If my dog finds out, he'll tell my wife. I was cheating on my wife the other day. With my dog. My wife and my dog left me. For each other. My wife and my dog ran away. They killed each other. Billy Kemper is an undergraduate at Stanford. Today's show was produced by myself and Natasha Ruck with help from Charlie Mintz. The Stanford Storytelling Project is produced by Jonah Willingans and Lee Constantinou. Thanks to Michelle Goldring, Lexi Spiranak, Sarah Grossman, Jeff Bauman, Crystal Lee, Emily Vogel, and Billy Kemper. Special thanks to Molly Antipole. Original music for the show was written and performed by Noah Burbank, Selwyn Lloyd, and Natalie Dawn. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Hannah Krakauer. Thanks for listening. Spirit, the love, if I show.